0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, this is Jack Wilson. Before we begin today, I wanted to let you know that today's podcast has disturbing stories of abduction and violence. Listeners are advised to exercise discretion.
1: I'll leave now, take what you need, you think will last But whatever you wish to keep, you better grab it fast He understands you're with his gun Crying like a fire in the sun Look how the saints are coming through. And it's all
0: over now, Baby Blue. Hmm. We're listening to Bob Dylan's 1965 song, It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, from his album, Bringing It All Back Home. The song closes side two of the album, and it leaves behind a thick atmosphere. Of chilling resonance Nobody knows who Dylan meant to say goodbye to There's been speculation that it's a former lover Or a friend Or folk music Or even Dylan saying goodbye to himself But it's the mood of the song that haunts us The mood of foreboding and farewell Someone is leaving And leaving with finality A chapter is closing Something new and frightening Is taking over American author Joyce Carol Oates wrote a short story in 1966. She was inspired by a profile of a serial killer in Life magazine, and what moved her in particular was not the killer, but the victims. They were not passive creatures in the life story of the killer. They were people who made choices, who had thoughts and hopes and dreams of their own. And they were young women from good homes, who were drawn away from their world of comfort and safety and into a foreign new world where the dangerous charisma of a killer reigns supreme. The story is a psychological horror show where the awkward but mesmerizing Arnold Friend seeks to entice Connie, an adolescent on the verge of womanhood. We see what powers he has and what tools she has to resist them, and perhaps what tools she does not have, and what that says about him, her, and the rest of us. Oates dedicated the story to Bob Dylan. She didn't know Bob Dylan. He wasn't a mentor, he wasn't a friend, except to the extent that he was a friend and mentor to an entire generation of young people. But Joyce Carol Oates when she wrote the story was 27. 55 years later, the story she wrote called Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been has lost none of its power. We will hear that story today and we'll have our old friend Evie Lee Vice President of the Literature Supporters Club, here to talk about it. That's coming up today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Thank you for joining me today on the podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Joyce Carol Oates. She is hard to compare to anyone else. At this point, she's like an, a, an American institution. I would compare her to a company because her output is so prodigious 58 novels by one count, short stories, plays, essays, novellas. She writes and writes and writes, generating literary fiction the way Coca Cola makes soft drinks or IBM makes computers. But that doesn't seem fair. That makes her sound like a sellout or a conveyor belt writer, like one of those authors who write to a template and crank out the same book over and over and over. She's not that. What I mean is that she's almost unfathomable. Her production so hard, her body of work so hard to contemplate. She's like the Shenandoah Mountains or Nebraska's cornfields or the innovative spirit of Silicon Valley. She's an American dynamo, a powerhouse, a one-woman literary entity, as if she had a whole genre to herself, including the writing, the editing, the publishing, and the commentary. That's getting a little obscure, a little abstract, and yet Joyce Oates is nothing like that in her prose. She's clear and clean and as tough as nails. The story we'll hear today is a killer, no pun intended. It goes straight into you, straight through you. I hope you'll stick around for it. And then For some commentary afterwards, as Evie and I talk about how far we've come in the 55 years since the story has been published, how much things have changed, and how much they've stayed the same. So let's take a quick break now. We'll hear a few listener emails. Oh, we have some good ones this week, including a dissent, a dissenting opinion. I will share with you a harsh critical email I received. I'm not here just to cherry-pick the good ones, people. I'm here for all emailers. That's my job. That's my responsibility. And I am up for it. Oh, sure. I mope around the house, wearing black for a few days, crying into my coffee. But setting all that aside, I'm up for it. Job, responsibility, all that. It's the life of a podcast host. Or at least the life of Jack Wilson. We'll have a few good emails, too. I need some compliments when I get one of those uh, hate listener emails. What's the Rodney Dangerfield joke about compliments? He said, I looked in the mirror and didn't like what I saw. I told my wife, I'm looking in the mirror and I see a fat, old, ugly man. I need you to compliment me. And she said, well, your eyesight's damn near perfect. Such a great joke. Someone, I think it was Norm Macdonald, One of Rodney Dangerfield's fans, I think it was Norm, said the great thing about Rodney Dangerfield was that every time he delivered a punchline, you could see a little flash of pain in his eyes. That's the best kind of humor, at least for me. Just like the best kind of fiction has a little happiness and a little sorrow, or a little desperation and a little hope, or as in this one we'll see today, a little light and a lot of darkness. Listener emails after this.
1: The sky too is folding under you. And it's all over now, baby blue. All your...
0: Hey grown ups, the cat in the hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Follow the Cat in the Hat Cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat Cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
1: are home Your empty-handed army As going home Your
0: Subject. Just another fan mail from Enga. Hey, the first time when I heard your podcast, even though it was about some book I never heard, English is not my first language, I could actually feel the ground shifting beneath my feet. Your thoughts on that totally unknown book felt like something the voice in my mind would say, something so personal and intimate as the voice in my head, as heard from some podcast. It was shocking. Then, When I dug deeper, I got to know you are like me, a person whose mind is built by the books he read. Then this similarity felt like home. I found someone who read like me. The way a sentence sounds and feels, the richness, the crisp everything. You get it. That's what makes your podcast a pocket of joy. Even if it is on something I don't know, or I have grown to love, or maybe that has warmed my heart along the way. It becomes my shelter, my happy place. Thanks for the experience, Anga. What a beautiful email, Anga. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. These emails, I would say, are my happy place. But sometimes, into every happy place, a little rain must fall. Here's one I got from listener Jane. Subject, Steinbeck Show. That's in all caps. Steinbeck Show. Steinbeck Show, shockingly bad. Plot of East of Eden botched. Treatment of Salinas Valley and Monterey Peninsula, ignorant. Much more. Even mispronounced Salinas. Makes me wonder if your other podcasts are any better. That's it. That's the email. Wow. Salinas? (laughs) Mispronounced? How do you say Salinas? Does Jane say it as Salinas? I don't know. I say Salinas. Did Mike say it as Salinas or something else? I don't remember. I don't really like Jane's attitude, people, because I think people are free to make mistakes about literature when they are earnest. I prefer earnest but erroneous commentary to the kind of gatekeeper attitude. Keep out. You're not worthy. Shut up and listen to me. I own literature. That's the tone I detect, unfortunately, in Jane. I'm correct, and you're not, and so you're not invited. Does Jane have a podcast, I wonder? Maybe everyone should go listen to Jane. No doubt Jane can talk about literature for hundreds of hours without ever making a mistake. And we will all be so blessed to receive the wisdom that we will never have a need for another podcast, even a scrappy little podcast full of mistakes. Look, I try to keep the mistakes down. Sometimes they creep in. I remember Mike getting the plot wrong, but then he got it right. And in the end, who cares? I like what Mike has to say about books. I like what Mike has to say about life. I'm here for Mike. I don't really go to books to learn facts about the Monterey Peninsula. Do you go to fiction for that? Does anyone? That seems like a problem to me. There's another problem here which is the problem of expertise. I've done hundreds of shows. I'm not an expert in hundreds of authors and hundreds of books. I'm a generalist. I'm trying, people. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to search. I'm trying to figure out if any of this stuff can help. I'm the guy who got thrown in the pool in the deep end, and I'm thrashing around trying to make my way to the side. I feel like I'm drowning most of the time. Imagine if you can't swim very well and your boat capsizes and the water is choppy. And you finally drag yourself onto shore and you're cold and scared and heaving for breath. And you look around and the lifeguard's up there in her chair, Jane. And she says, oh, crappy technique. You don't know how to swim at all. And you think, yes, thank you. I know that. I'm not trying to swim. <laughs> I'm not an Olympic swimmer here. I'm trying to survive. So, yes, dear listener Jane, I'm not trying to swim in facts like the Monterey Peninsula. I'm trying to survive. Here's another metaphor. I'm not the guy on the mountaintop who's climbed to the top and is now flinging books down at the people who haven't climbed up as fast as or as well as I have that's a different podcast. You can listen to those podcasts if you want. Be my guest. I'm the guy who's in a pit. There's not much down here. There's some books. There's a lot of other people. I'm trying to climb out. I'm willing to pile up books to see if I can get out that way or get closer to getting out. Climb up the side of this pit, okay? Sometimes I fall, Sometimes I make it up halfway, and I report back to the rest of you. Now, if you're in the pit with me, you probably like hearing that. You probably like knowing which of these books helps me climb up and how high I get. But if you're up there, up in the realm of perfection, then yes, you probably don't have much need to hear how this climb of mine is going, what these piles are like. I've got guests who are doing the same thing. Those are the guests I like to have on, the ones who are also trying to climb out of this pit. We report to each other. If you're trying to climb out of a pit, do you care how Salinas is pronounced? Or do you care if Steinbeck said something meaningful about the human condition? The question for me is whether Steinbeck had any answers. Did he just talk in cliches? Does his fiction help? Does he help? Am I the only one asking that question? It's okay. I don't mean to pick on Jane here. It's hard when you're smart and perfect. I get it. I mean, I know I'm not any of those things, but I can imagine how hard it must be to go through life like that and have to listen to podcasts where people make mistakes When those mistakes infuriate you. So I wrote Jane an email. Sorry, sorry, it's not your cup of tea. Sounds like the episode didn't work for you. Hope you find a podcast that you like better because I do. I think podcasts are great. They keep me company. And I think finding ones that you like is a great thing. And I'm not going to stop making the podcast, even though emails like this kind of do drag me down when I hear that people don't like it. That's okay. Have I ever told you my story about the MFA program I was in? We had about eight of us or so. And after a while, everyone was getting kind of tired of just criticizing each other's work every week. So one semester, we had this idea that we would bring in writers we loved to share with the group. It was a way for us all to unite, to become friends again, to remember what it was we loved about literature. And someone said, well, won't we all be bringing in the same stuff? And it'll be just sort of like fan service for our favorite authors, Somebody else said, Well, who are we talking about? Kafka? And someone said that actually they hated Kafka. They never really got him. Someone else said, Well, maybe Alice Monroe? Nope, nope. Someone in the group found her boring. Baldwin? Nope, can't get into it. How about Dennis Johnson? He was pretty hot at the time. Nope, a few people didn't like him, some couldn't stand him. And we went around the room trying to name an author that all eight of us liked. This is eight people who love writing, who love fiction, who were in the room just for that purpose. Jane Austen, George Eliot, Proust, Joyce, Kafka, Raymond Carver, William Trevor, the Brontes, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Saul Bellow, Tony Morrison. Some of those authors got seven votes, but none of them got eight. It was frustrating for me at first because I thought, what am I doing here? How are these people going to like my work when they have no taste. But that was the wrong way to look at it. That, the way to look at it was, why should I expect universal praise when this group wouldn't universally praise Chekhov? Chekhov! And he's not for everyone. So this podcast, like any creative effort, is not for everyone. I get it. There are people who don't like The Godfather, or Star Wars, or E.T., imagine if Coppola, or Lucas, or Spielberg had let that stop them from making anything at all. I've had people email me to tell me tell me to stop. Just stop. Just stop podcasting. You're so bad. Just stop. Imagine writing an email like that to someone. One guy said that after, I think, episode 9. Very early episode. You need to stop. Just stop. I hope he's not still listening. Angered every time he sees a new episode. He still hasn't stopped. I told him to. <laughs> I told that guy to stop. Ugh. So, with apologies to Jane, who no doubt is... Oh, and I should say, I've been blessed by a lot of support too. I don't mean to minimize that. Overwhelmingly. Positive emails definitely outnumber the non-fans. If I didn't get so many positive emails, maybe I would have stopped by now, or maybe I would have changed or done something else. I'm not saying I'm going to be blind and plunge forward. But if this, and I'm also not saying that this is as good as The Godfather or Star Wars or E.T. or anything like that. If it's 1 100th as good or 1 1,000th as good, if it's 1 10,000th as good, as something like The Godfather, I'll take one ten-thousandth of the the viewers that that had, or the listeners, convert viewers to listeners, however you want to think of it. I'll take one one-hundred-thousandth of the success of a movie like that. If it can be that good, and if people find it and like it, then who cares? And so, with apologies to Jane who no doubt is still busy wondering if the other episodes are any good at all. (laughs) kind of enjoyed that sentence. Makes me wonder if the other podcasts are just as bad. I'm wondering that, and I need to tell you. I need to tell you what I'm wondering. I'm wondering if they're just as bad. Love, Jane. Oh, thanks for giving me the heads up about that, Jane, that you have that concern. You're wondering if it makes me, you know what it makes me wonder? It makes me wonder if the other episodes are just as bad. <laughs> can I do? I just have to keep going. The podcast is getting bigger, which means more listeners and more feedback, which is great. But it also means more emails like Jane's, which is not so great. But it is just part of the deal. I can accept it. I get it. My apologies to Jane and to any other listener who has felt this way along the way or who, for some reason is still listening. Maybe you feel that way all the time. Here's an email from Daniel, who doesn't feel that way. Told you, I need a little compliment. I need to hear that I have perfect vision (laughs) when I see the fat, old, ugly guy in the mirror. From Daniel, the first time, let's see, did we have a subject on this? I didn't write it down. The first time when I heard your podcast, even though it was about some, no, that's the wrong email. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's back to anger. Here we go. Subject with compliments. That's why I picked this one. It's just like Rodney looking in the mirror, getting his compliment from his wife. Perfect vision. Okay. Subject with compliments. Jack, just finish the row part two. I am writing simply to pay you a compliment. Your command of the English language continually astonishes me. And not just that, more so is your ability to convey thoughts and ideas. To convey possible life meanings in your descriptions of an author or an author's work that sticks with me. And you do it so effortlessly with such grace and ease, sometimes delicate, other times vigorous, whichever is called for. It works. It just works. You get your points across so beautifully, so magically, and with just the right dash of whimsy as to make even the most difficult minds of literary history seem approachable, inviting even. I've read a good 70% of what we might term as the literary canon, I have not read The Magic Mountain. I had a nice leather-bound copy by Easton Press, but I donated it to the school library where I used to teach literature to students, grades 9 through 12. It's an intimidating work, this Magic Mountain, but I notice it earns frequent mention on your show. I must be missing out. Time to buckle up and go for it. Thanks for the courage to do so. Oh, and I almost forgot, I loved the Lennon reference and excerpt from the album version of Revolution 9. Love those collisions between literature and music. Also enjoyed your list of Beatles double A-sides, except you left out And I Love Her, backed by If I Fell, Daniel. Well, thank you, Daniel. Very kind words, which I think are kind of in the spirit of the show, looking for life meanings. You're very charitable to say that I do this with grace and ease, sometimes delicate, other times vigorous. I feel like I'm thrashing around, as I mentioned, trying to swim for shore, my limbs churning furiously, sometimes I'm treading water. I guess that's, you could say, is <laughs> sometimes delicate and sometimes vigorous. Okay, so what's great about Daniel's email, of course, I'm a big fan of those Beatles songs, too. I like the mention of that. It puts me in a good frame of mind. But maybe that's the wrong frame of mind for now. We are about to go deep and heavy. We'll have one more break, then come back with Joyce Carol Oates. First, the story, and then our friend Evie to discuss the story. You have
1: gathered from The empty-handed painter from your street Is drawing crazy patterns on your sheets The sky too is folding under you And it's all over now, baby blue All your seasickness
0: Where are you going? Where have you been? By Joyce Carol Oates For Bob Dylan Her name was Connie. She was 15, and she had a quick, nervous, giggling habit of craning her neck to glance into mirrors or checking other people's faces to make sure her own was all right. Her mother, who noticed everything and knew everything and who hadn't much reason any longer to look at her own face, always scolded Connie about it. Stop gawking at yourself. Who are you? You think you're so pretty? She would say. Connie would raise her eyebrows at these familiar old complaints and look right through her mother into a shadowy vision of herself as she was right at that moment. She knew she was pretty and that was everything. Her mother had been pretty once too, if you could believe those old snapshots in the album, but now her looks were gone and that was why she was always after Connie. Why don't you keep your room clean like your sister? How have you got your hair fixed? What the hell stinks? Hairspray? You don't see your sister using that junk. Her sister June was 24 and still lived at home. She was a secretary in the high school Connie attended, and if that wasn't bad enough with her in the same building, she was so plain and chunky and steady that Connie had to hear her praised all the time by her mother and her mother's sisters. June did this, June did that, she saved money and helped clean the house and cooked, and Connie couldn't do a thing. Her mind was all filled with trashy daydreams. Their father was away at work most of the time, and when he came home he wanted supper, and he read the newspaper at supper, and after supper he went to bed. He didn't bother talking much to them, but around his bent head Connie's mother kept picking at her until Connie wished her mother was dead, and she herself was dead, and it was all over. She makes me want to throw up sometimes, she complained to her friends. She had a high, breathless, amused voice that made everything she said sound a little forced, whether it was sincere or not. There was one good thing. June went places with girlfriends of hers, girls who were just as plain and steady as she. And so when Connie wanted to do that, her mother had no objections. The father of Connie's best girlfriend drove the girls three miles to town and left them at a shopping plaza, so they could walk through the stores or go to a movie, and when he came to pick them up again at eleven, he never bothered to ask what they had done. They must have been familiar sights, walking around the shopping plaza in their shorts and flat ballerina slippers that always scuffed the sidewalk, with charm bracelets jingling on their thin wrists. They would lean together to whisper and laugh secretly if someone passed who amused or interested them. Connie had long, dark, blonde hair that drew anyone's eye to it, and she wore part of it pulled up on her head and puffed out, and the rest of it she let fall down her back. She wore a pullover jersey blouse that looked one way when she was at home and another way when she was away from home. Everything about her had two sides to it, one for home and one for anywhere that was not home. Her walk, which could be childlike and bobbing, or languid enough to make anyone think she was hearing music in her head. Her mouth, which was pale and smirking most of the time, but bright and pink on these evenings out. Her laugh, which was cynical and drawling at home, ha ha, very funny, but high-pitched and nervous anywhere else, like the jingling of the charms on her bracelet. Sometimes they did go shopping or to a movie, But sometimes they went across the highway, ducking fast across the busy road, to a drive-in restaurant where older kids hung out. The restaurant was shaped like a big bottle, though squatter than a real bottle, and on its cap was a revolving figure of a grinning boy holding a hamburger aloft. One night in midsummer, they ran across, breathless with daring, and right away someone leaned out a car window and invited them over. But it was just a boy from high school they didn't like. It made them feel good to be able to ignore him. They went up through the maze of parked and cruising cars to the bright-lit, fly-infested restaurant, their faces pleased and expectant, as if they were entering a sacred building that loomed up out of the night to give them what haven and blessing they yearned for. They sat at the counter and crossed their legs at the ankles, their thin shoulders rigid with excitement, and listened to the music that made everything so good. The music was always in the background, like music at a church service. It was something to depend upon. A boy named Eddie came in to talk with them. He sat backwards on his stool, turning himself jerkily around in semicircles, and then stopping and turning back again. And after a while, he asked Connie if she would like something to eat. She said she would, and so she tapped her friend's arm on her way out. Her friend pulled her face up into a brave, droll look, and Connie said she would meet her at eleven across the way. I just hate to leave her like that, Connie said earnestly, but the boy said that she wouldn't be alone for long. So they went out to his car, and on the way, Connie couldn't help but let her eyes wander over the windshields and faces all around her, her face gleaming with a joy that had nothing to do with Eddie or even this place. It might have been the music. She drew her shoulders up and sucked in her breath with the pure pleasure of being alive. And just at that moment, she happened to glance at a face just a few feet from hers. It was a boy with shaggy black hair in a convertible jalopy painted gold. He stared at her, and then his lips widened into a grin. Connie slit her eyes at him and turned away, but she couldn't help glancing back. And there he was, still watching her. He wagged a finger and laughed and said, "'Gonna get you, baby.' And Connie turned away again without Eddie noticing anything. She spent three hours with him at the restaurant where they ate hamburgers and drank Cokes in wax cups that were always sweating, and then down an alley a mile or so away, and when he left her off at 5 to 11, only the movie house was still open at the plaza. Her girlfriend was there talking with a boy. When Connie came up, the two girls smiled at each other and Connie said, how was the movie? And the girl said, you should know. They rode off with the girl's father, sleepy and pleased and Connie couldn't help but look back at the darkened shopping plaza with its big empty parking lot and its signs that were faded and ghostly now and over at the drive-in restaurant where cars were still circling tirelessly. She couldn't hear the music at this distance. Next morning, June asked her how the movie was, and Connie said, So-so. She and that girl and occasionally another girl went out several times a week, and the rest of the time Connie spent around the house. It was summer vacation, getting in her mother's way and thinking, dreaming about the boys she met. But all the boys fell back and dissolved into a single face that was not even a face but an idea. A feeling mixed up with the urgent, insistent pounding of the music and the humid night air of July. Connie's mother kept dragging her back to the daylight by finding things for her to do or saying suddenly, what's this about the Pettinger girl? And Connie would say nervously, oh, her, that dope. She always drew thick, clear lines between herself and such girls, and her mother was simple and kind enough to believe it. Her mother was so simple. Connie thought, that it was maybe cruel to fool her so much. Her mother went scuffling around the house in old bedroom slippers and complained over the telephone to one sister about the other. Then the other called up and the two of them complained about the third one. If June's name was mentioned, her mother's tone was approving. And if Connie's name was mentioned, it was disapproving. This did not really mean she disliked Connie, and actually Connie thought that her mother preferred her to June, just because she was prettier. But the two of them kept up a pretense of exasperation, a sense that they were tugging and struggling over something of little value to either of them. Sometimes, over coffee, they were almost friends, but something would come up, some vexation that was like a fly buzzing suddenly around their heads, and their faces went hard with contempt. One Sunday, Connie got up at 11. None of them bothered with church and washed her hair so that it could dry all day long in the sun. Her parents and sister were going to a barbecue at an aunt's house and Connie said no, she wasn't interested, rolling her eyes to let her mother know just what she thought of it. Stay home alone then, her mother said sharply. Connie sat out back in a lawn chair and watched them drive away, her father quiet and bald hunched around so that he could back the car out, her mother with a look that was still angry and not at all softened through the windshield, and in the back seat, poor old June, all dressed up as if she didn't know what a barbecue was, with all the running, yelling kids and the flies. Connie sat with her eyes closed in the sun, dreaming and dazed with the warmth about her, as if this were a kind of love, the caresses of love and her mind slipped over onto thoughts of the boy she had been with the night before, and how nice he had been, how sweet it always was, not the way someone like June would suppose, but sweet, gentle, the way it was in movies, and promised in songs. And when she opened her eyes, she hardly knew where she was. The backyard ran off into weeds and a fence-like line of trees, and behind it the sky was perfectly blue and still. The asbestos ranch house that was now three years old startled her. It looked small. She shook her head as if to get awake. It was too hot. She went inside the house and turned on the radio to drown out the quiet. She sat on the edge of her bed, barefoot, and listened for an hour and a half to a program called XYZ Sunday Jamboree, record after record of hard, fast, shrieking songs she sang along with, interspersed by exclamations from Bobby King. And look here, you girls at Napoleon's Son and Charlie want you to pay real close attention to this song coming up. And Connie paid close attention herself, bathed in a glow of slow-pulsed joy that seemed to rise mysteriously out of the music itself and lay languidly about the airless little room, breathed in and breathed out with each gentle rise and fall of her chest. After a while, she heard a car coming up the drive. She sat up at once, startled, because it couldn't be her father so soon. The gravel kept crunching all the way in from the road. The driveway was long, and Connie ran to the window. It was a car she didn't know. It was an open jalopy, painted a bright gold, that caught the sunlight opaquely. Her heart began to pound, and her fingers snatched at her hair, checking it, and she whispered, Christ! Christ, wondering how bad she looked. The car came to a stop at the side door and the horn sounded four short taps as if this were a signal Connie knew. She went into the kitchen and approached the door slowly, then hung out at the screen door, her bare toes curling down off the step. There were two boys in the car and now she recognized the driver. He had shaggy, shabby black hair that looked crazy as a wig and he was grinning at her. I ain't late, am I? He said. Who the hell do you think you are? Connie said. Told you I'd be out, didn't I? I don't even know who you are. She spoke sullenly, careful to show no interest or pleasure, and he spoke in a fast, bright monotone. Connie looked past him to the other boy, taking her time. He had fair brown hair with a lock that fell onto his forehead. His sideburns gave him a fierce, embarrassed look, but so far he hadn't even bothered to glance at her. Both boys wore sunglasses. The driver's glasses were metallic and mirrored everything in miniature. You want to come for a ride? He said. Connie smirked and let her hair fall loose over one shoulder. Don't you like my car? New paint job? He said. Hey. What? You're cute. She pretended to fidget, chasing flies away from the door. Don't you believe me or what? He said. Look, I don't even know who you are, Connie said in disgust. Hey, Ellie's got a radio, see? Mine broke down. He lifted his friend's arm and showed her the little transistor radio the boy was holding, and now Connie began to hear the music. It was the same program that was playing inside the house. Bobby King, she said. I listen to him all the time. I think he's great. He's kind of great, Connie said reluctantly. Listen, that guy's great. He knows where the action is. Connie blushed a little because the glasses made it impossible for her to see just what this boy was looking at. She couldn't decide if she liked him or if he was just a jerk, and so she dawdled in the doorway and wouldn't come down or go back inside. She said, what's all that stuff painted on your car? Can't you read it? He opened the door very carefully, as if he were afraid it might fall off. He slid out just as carefully, planting his feet firmly on the ground, the tiny metallic world in his glasses slowing down like gelatin hardening, and in the midst of it, Connie's bright green blouse. This here is my name, to begin with, he said. Arnold Friend. "'was written in tar-like black letters on the side "'with a drawing of a round, grinning face "'that reminded Connie of a pumpkin, except it wore sunglasses. "'I want to introduce myself. "'I'm Arnold Friend, and that's my real name, "'and I'm going to be your friend, honey, "'and inside the car's Ellie Oscar. "'He's kind of shy.' Ellie brought his transistor radio up to his shoulder "'and balanced it there. "'Now these numbers are a secret code, honey,' "'Arnold Friend explained.' He read off the numbers 33, 19, 17, and raised his eyebrows at her to see what she thought of that, but she didn't think much of it. The left rear fender had been smashed, and around it was written, on the gleaming gold background, ''Done by Crazy Woman Driver.'' Connie had to laugh at that. Arnold Friend was pleased at her laughter and looked up at her. ''Around the other side's a lot more. You want to come and see them?'' ''No.'' Why not? Why should I? Don't you want to see what's on the car? Don't you want to go for a ride? I don't know. Why not? I got things to do. Like what? Things. He laughed as if she had said something funny. He slapped his thighs. He was standing in a strange way, leaning back against the car as if he were balancing himself. He wasn't tall, only an inch or so taller than she would be if she came down to him. Connie liked the way he was dressed, which was the way all of them dressed. Tight faded jeans stuffed into black scuffed boots, a belt that pulled his waist in and showed how lean he was, and a white pullover shirt that was a little soiled and showed the hard small muscles of his arms and shoulders. He looked as if he probably did hard work lifting and carrying things. Even his neck looked muscular. And his face was a familiar face, somehow. The jaw and chin and cheeks slightly darkened because he hadn't shaved for a day or two. And the nose long and hawk-like, sniffing as if she were a treat he was going to gobble up. And it was all a joke. Connie, you ain't telling the truth. This is your day set aside for a ride with me and you know it, he said, still laughing. The way he straightened and recovered from his fit of laughing showed that it had been all fake. How do you know what my name is? She said suspiciously. It's Connie. Maybe and maybe not. I know my Connie, he said, wagging his finger. Now she remembered him even better back at the restaurant and her cheeks warmed at the thought of how she had sucked in her breath just at the moment she passed him, how she must have looked to him and he had remembered her. Ellie and I come out here especially for you, he said. Ellie can sit in back. How about it? Where? Where what? Where are we going? He looked at her. He took off the sunglasses and she saw how pale the skin around his eyes was, like holes that were not in shadow, but instead in light. His eyes were like chips of broken glass that catch the light in an amiable way. He smiled. It was as if the idea of going for a ride somewhere, to some place, was a new idea to him. Just for a ride, Connie Sweetheart. I never said my name was Connie, she said. But I know what it is. I know your name and all about you. Lots of things, Arnold Friend said. He had not moved yet, but stood still, leaning back against the side of his jalopy. I took a special interest in you, such a pretty girl, and found out all about you. Like I know your parents and sister are gone somewheres, and I know where and how long they're going to be gone, and I know who you were with last night, and your best girlfriend's name is Betty. Right? He spoke in a simple, lilting voice, exactly as if he were reciting the words to a song. His smile assured her that everything was fine. In the car, Ellie turned up the volume on his radio and did not bother to look around at them. Ellie can sit in the back seat, Arnold Friend said. He indicated his friend with a casual jerk of his chin, as if Ellie did not count and she should not bother with him. How'd you find out all that stuff? Connie said. Listen, Betty Schultz and Tony Fitch and Jimmy Pettinger and Nancy Pettinger, he said in a chant, Raymond Stanley And Bob Rudder. Do you know all those kids? I know everybody. Look, you're kidding. You're not from around here. Sure. But how come we never saw you before? Sure you saw me before, he said. He looked down at his boots as if he were a little offended. You just don't remember. I guess I'd remember you, Connie said. Yeah. He looked up at this, beaming. He was pleased. He began to mark time with the music from Ellie's radio, tapping his fists lightly together. Connie looked away from his smile to the car, which was painted so bright it almost hurt her eyes to look at it. She looked at that name, Arnold Friend, and up at the front fender was an expression that was familiar, Man the Flying Saucers. It was an expression kids had used the year before, but didn't use this year. She looked at it for a while, as if the words meant something to her that she did not yet know. "'What are you thinking about, huh?' Arnold's friend demanded. "'Not worried about your hair blowing around in the car, are you?' "'No. Think I maybe can't drive good?' "'How do I know?' "'You're a hard girl to handle. How come?' he said. "'Don't you know I'm your friend? Didn't you see me put my sign in the air when you walked by?' "'What sign?' My sign. And he drew an X in the air, leaning out toward her. They were maybe ten feet apart. After his hand fell back to his side, the X was still in the air, almost visible. Connie let the screen door close and stood perfectly still inside it, listening to the music from her radio and the boys blend together. She stared at Arnold's friend. He stood there so stiffly relaxed, pretending to be relaxed, with one hand idly on the door handle, as if he were keeping himself up that way, and had no intention of ever moving again. She recognized most things about him, the tight jeans that showed his thighs and buttocks, and the greasy leather boots and the tight shirt, and even that slippery, friendly smile of his, that sleepy, dreamy smile that all the boys used to get across ideas they didn't want to put into words." She recognized all this, and also the sing-song way he talked, slightly mocking, kidding, but serious and a little melancholy. And she recognized the way he tapped one fist against the other in homage to the perpetual music behind him. But all these things did not come together. She said suddenly, Hey, how old are you? His smile faded. She could see then that he wasn't a kid. He was much older, thirty, maybe more. At this knowledge, her heart began to pound faster. That's a crazy thing to ask. Can't you see I'm your own age? Like hell you are. Or maybe a couple years older. I'm eighteen. Eighteen, she said doubtfully. He grinned to reassure her, and lines appeared at the corners of his mouth. His teeth were big and white. He grinned so broadly his eyes became slits, and she saw how thick the lashes were thick and black, as if painted with a black tar-like material. Then, abruptly, he seemed to become embarrassed and looked over his shoulder at Ellie. Him? He's crazy, he said. Ain't he a riot? He's a nut, a real character. Ellie was still listening to the music. His sunglasses told nothing about what he was thinking. He wore a bright orange shirt, unbuttoned halfway to show his chest, which was a pale, bluish chest, and not muscular like Arnold Friend's. His shirt collar was turned up all around, and the very tips of the collar pointed out past his chin, as if they were protecting him. He was pressing the transistor radio up against his ear, and sat there in a kind of daze, right in the sun. "'He's kind of strange,' Connie said. "'Hey, she says you're kind of strange, kind of strange!' Arnold Friend cried. He pounded on the car to get Ellie's attention." Ellie turned for the first time, and Connie saw with shock that he wasn't a kid either. He had a fair, hairless face, cheeks reddened slightly, as if the veins grew too close to the surface of his skin, the face of a 40-year-old baby. Connie felt a wave of dizziness rise in her at this sight, and she stared at him as if waiting for something to change the shock of the moment, make it all right again. Ellie's lips kept shaping words, mumbling along with the words blasting in his ear. "'Maybe you two better go away,' Connie said faintly. "'What? How come?' Arnold Friend cried. "'We come out here to take you for a ride. It's Sunday.' He had the voice of the man on the radio now. It was the same voice, Connie thought. "'Don't you know it's Sunday all day? And honey, no matter who you were with last night, today you're with Arnold Friend, and don't you forget it. Maybe you better step out here,' he said, and this last was in a different voice. It was a little flatter.' as if the heat was finally getting to him. No, I got things to do. Hey, you two better leave. We ain't leaving till you come with us. Like hell I am. Connie, don't fool around with me. I mean, I mean, don't fool around, he said, shaking his head. He laughed incredulously. He placed his sunglasses on top of his head carefully, as if he were indeed wearing a wig, and brought the stems down behind his ears. Connie stared at him, another wave of dizziness and fear rising in her, so that for a moment he wasn't even in focus, but was just a blur standing there against his gold car, and she had the idea that he had driven up the driveway all right, but it had come from nowhere before that, and belonged nowhere, and that everything about him, and even about the music that was so familiar to her, was only half real. If my father comes and sees you, he ain't coming. He's at a barbecue. How do you know that? Aunt Tilly's. Right now they're, uh, they're drinking, sitting around, he said vaguely, squinting, as if he were staring all the way to town and over to Aunt Tilly's backyard. Then the vision seemed to get clear, and he nodded energetically. Yeah, sitting around. There's your sister in a blue dress, huh? And high heels, the poor sad bitch. Nothing like you, sweetheart. And your mother's helping some fat woman with the corn. They're cleaning the corn, husking the corn. What fat woman? Connie cried. How do I know what fat woman? I don't know every goddamn fat woman in the world. Arnold friend laughed. Oh, that's Mrs. Hornsby. Who invited her? Connie said. She felt a little lightheaded. Her breath was coming quickly. She's too fat. I don't like them fat. I like them the way you are, honey, he said, smiling sleepily at her. They stared at each other for a while through the screen door. He said softly, Now what you're going to do is this you're going to come out that door. You're going to sit up front with me, and Ellie's going to sit in the back. The hell with Ellie, right? This isn't Ellie's date. You're my date. I'm your lover, honey. What? You're crazy. Yes, I'm your lover. You don't know what that is, but you will, he said. I know that too. I know all about you. But look, it's real nice. And you couldn't ask for nobody better than me or more polite. I always keep my word. I'll tell you how it is. I'm always nice at first, the first time. I'll hold you so tight you won't think you have to try to get away or pretend anything because you'll know you can't. And I'll come inside you where it's all secret, and you'll give in to me, and you'll love me. Shut up, you're crazy, Connie said. She backed away from the door. She put her hands up against her ears, as if she'd heard something terrible, something not meant for her. People don't talk like that. You're crazy, she muttered. Her heart was almost too big now for her chest, and its pumping made sweat break out all over her. She looked out to see Arnold Friend pause and then take a step toward the porch, lurching. He almost fell, but like a clever, drunken man, he managed to catch his balance. He wobbled in his high boots and grabbed hold of one of the porch posts. Honey, he said, you still listening? Get the hell out of here. Be nice, honey. Listen. I'm going to call the police. He wobbled again. And out of the side of his mouth came a fast, spat curse, an aside not meant for her to hear. But even this, Christ, sounded forced. Then he began to smile again. She watched this smile come, awkward as if he were smiling from inside a mask. His whole face was a mask, she thought wildly, tanned down to his throat, but then running out as if he had plastered makeup on his face, but had forgotten about his throat. Honey, listen, here's how it is. I always tell the truth, and I promise you this. I ain't coming in that house after you. You better not. I'm going to call the police if you if you don't. Honey, he said, talking right through her voice. Honey, I'm not coming in there, but you are coming out here. You know why? She was panting. The kitchen looked like a place she had never seen before. Some room she had run inside, but that wasn't good enough, wasn't going to help her. The kitchen window had never had a curtain, after three years, and there were dishes in the sink for her to do, probably. And if you ran your hand across the table, you'd probably feel something sticky there. You listening, honey? Hey. Going to call the police. Soon as you touch the phone, I don't need to keep my promise and can come inside. You won't want that. She rushed forward and tried to lock the door. Her fingers were shaking. But why lock it? Arnold Friend said gently, talking right into her face. It's just a screen door. It's just nothing. One of his boots was at a strange angle, as if his foot wasn't in it. It pointed out to the left, bent at the ankle. I mean, anybody can break through a screen door and glass and wood and iron or anything else if he needs to, anybody at all, and specially Arnold Friend. If the place got lit up with a fire, honey, you'd come running out into my arms, right into my arms and safe at home, like you knew I was your lover, and had stopped fooling around. I don't mind a nice, shy girl, but I don't like no fooling around." Part of those words were spoken with a slight rhythmic lilt, and Connie somehow recognized them, the echo of a song from last year about a girl rushing into her boyfriend's arms and coming home again. Connie stood barefoot on the linoleum floor, staring at him. "'What do you want?' she whispered. "'I want you,' he said. "'What?' seen you that night and thought that's the one yes sir I never needed to look any more. but my father's coming back he's coming to get me I had to wash my hair first she spoke in a dry rapid voice hardly raising it for him to hear no your daddy is not coming and yes you had to wash your hair and you washed it for me it's nice and shining and all For me. I thank you, sweetheart, he said with a mock bow, but again he almost lost his balance. He had to bend and adjust his boots. Evidently his feet did not go all the way down. The boots must have been stuffed with something so that he would seem taller. Connie stared out at him and behind him at Ellie in the car, who seemed to be looking off toward Connie's right into nothing. Ellie said, pulling the words out of the air one after another, as if he were just discovering them. You want me to pull out the phone? Shut your mouth and keep it shut, Arnold Friend said, his face red from bending over, or maybe from embarrassment, because Connie had seen his boots. This ain't none of your business. What? What are you doing? What do you want? Connie said. If I call the police, they'll get you. They'll arrest you promise was not to come in unless you touch that phone, and I'll keep that promise, he said. He resumed his erect position and tried to force his shoulders back. He sounded like a hero in a movie, declaring something important, but he spoke too loudly, and it was as if he were speaking to someone behind Connie. I ain't made plans for coming in that house where I don't belong, but just for you to come out to me the way you should. Don't you know who I am? You're crazy, she whispered. She backed away from the door, but did not want to go into another part of the house, as if this would give him permission to come through the door. What do you... You're crazy. You... Huh? What are you saying, honey? Her eyes darted everywhere in the kitchen. She could not remember what it was, this room. This is how it is, honey. You come out and we'll drive away. Have a nice ride, but if you don't come out, we're going to wait till your people come home, and then they're all going to get it. You want that telephone pulled out? Ellie said. He held the radio away from his ear and grimaced, as if without the radio, the air was too much for him. I told you, shut up, Ellie, Arnold Friend said. You're deaf. Get a hearing aid, right? Fix yourself up. This little girl's no trouble and's gonna be nice to me. So Ellie, keep to yourself. This ain't your date, right? Don't hem in on me. Don't hog, don't crush, don't bird dog, don't trail me, he said in a rapid, meaningless voice, as if he were running through all the expressions he'd learned, but was no longer sure which of them was in style. Then, rushing on to new ones, making them up with his eyes closed. Don't crawl under my fence. Don't squeeze in my chipmunk hole. Don't sniff my glue. Suck my popsicle. Keep your own greasy fingers on yourself. He shaded his eyes and peered in at Connie, who was backed against the kitchen table. Don't mind him, honey. He's just a creep. He's a dope, right? I'm the boy for you. And like I said, you come out here nice like a lady and give me your hand and nobody else gets hurt. I mean your nice, old, bald-headed daddy, and your mummy and your sister in her high heels. Because, listen, why bring them in this? Leave me alone, Connie whispered. Hey, you know that old woman down the road, the one with the chickens and stuff, you know her? She's dead. Dead? What? You know her? Arnold Friend said. She's dead. Don't you like her? She's dead. She's She isn't here anymore. But don't you like her? I mean, you got something against her? Some grudge or something? Then his voice dipped, as if he were conscious of a rudeness. He touched the sunglasses perched up on top of his head, as if to make sure they were still there. Now, you be a good girl. What are you going to do? Just two things, or maybe three, Arnold Friend said. But I promise it won't last long and you'll like me the way you get to like people you're close to. You will. It's all over for you here, so come on out. You don't want your people in any trouble, do you? She turned and bumped against a chair or something, hurting her leg, but she ran into the back room and picked up the telephone. Something roared in her ear, a tiny roaring, and she was so sick with fear that she could do nothing but listen to it. The telephone was clammy, and very heavy and her fingers groped down to the dial but were too weak to touch it she began to scream into the phone into the roaring she cried out she cried for her mother she felt her breath start jerking back and forth in her lungs as if it were something arnold friend was stabbing her with again and again with no tenderness a noisy sorrowful wailing rose all about her and she was locked inside it the way she was locked inside this house After a while, she could hear again. She was sitting on the floor with her wet back against the wall. Arnold Friend was saying from the door, That's a good girl. Put the phone back. She kicked the phone away from her. No, honey. Pick it up. Put it back right. She picked it up and put it back. The dial tone stopped. That's a good girl. Now, you come outside. She was hollow with what had been fear, but what was now just an emptiness. All that screaming had blasted it out of her. She sat, one leg cramped under her, and deep inside her brain was something like a pinpoint of light that kept going, and would not let her relax. She thought, I'm not going to see my mother again. She thought, I'm not going to sleep in my bed again. Her bright green blouse was all wet. Arnold Friend said in a gentle, loud voice that was like a stage voice. The place where you came from ain't there anymore. And where you had in mind to go is canceled out. This place you are now, inside your daddy's house, is nothing but a cardboard box I can knock down at any time. You know that, and always did know it. You hear me? She thought, I have got to think. I have got to know what to do. We'll go out to a nice field out in the country here where it smells so nice and it's sunny, Arnold Friend said. I'll have my arms tight around you so you won't need to try to get away and I'll show you what love is like, what it does. The hell with this house. It looks solid all right, he said. He ran a fingernail down the screen and the noise did not make Connie shiver as it would have the day before. Now, Put your hand on your heart, honey. Feel that? That feels solid too, but we know better. Be nice to me. Be sweet like you can, because what else is there for a girl like you to be but sweet and pretty and give in? Then get away before her people come back. She felt her pounding heart. Her hand seemed to enclose it. She thought for the first time in her life that it was nothing that was hers that belonged to her but just a pounding, living thing inside this body that wasn't really hers either. You don't want them to get hurt, Arnold Friend went on. Now, get up, honey. Get up all by yourself. She stood. Now, turn this way. That's right. Come over here to me. Ellie, put that away. Didn't I tell you? You dope. You miserable, creepy dope, Arnold Friend said. His words were not angry, but only part of an incantation. The incantation was kindly. Now come out through the kitchen to me, honey, and let's see a smile. Try it. You're a brave, sweet little girl, and now they're eating corn and hot dogs cooked to bursting over an outdoor fire, and they don't know one thing about you, and never did. And honey, you're better than them, because not a one of them would have done this for you. Connie felt the linoleum under her feet. It was cool. She brushed her hair back out of her eyes. Arnold Friend let go of the post tentatively and opened his arms for her, his elbows pointing in toward each other and his wrists limp to show that this was an embarrassed embrace and a little mocking. He didn't want to make her self-conscious. She put her hand out against the screen. She watched herself push the door slowly open as if she were back safe somewhere in the other doorway watching this body and this head of long hair moving out into the sunlight where Arnold Friend waited. My sweet little blue-eyed girl, he said in a half-sung sigh that had nothing to do with her brown eyes, but was taken up just the same by the vast sunlit reaches of the land behind him and on all sides of him. So much land that Connie had never seen before and did not recognize except to know. That she was going to it. The
1: vagabond who's rapping at your door is standing in the clothes that you once wore. Strike another match, go start anew. And it's all over now baby blue
0: okay joining me now is evie lee one of the vice presidents of the illustrious literature supporters club evie welcome back to the history of literature podcast
2: Hello, Jack. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be back.
0: Okay, so we're talking today about a classic short story, Joyce Carol Oates's Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? And I think there was a period where this was really uh, something that a lot of people were reading. It was in a lot of anthologies. It's from 1966, and it's already 54 years old. Did it feel dated to you when you were reading it?
2: You know, as a woman, from that perspective, it did not feel dated yeah. because you know I was an adolescent teenager, and some of the uh, experiences that Connie uh, go through in the story, I, I remember feeling. So yeah. I think, you know, just the human experience, I think, allows it to to carry over. Yeah, and age well.
0: I felt that way too. There's, I mean, there are some. Some references and things, but just the the basic story of uh, a teenage girl and an older guy and a car. Uh, that's, <laughs> I mean, you could almost imagine that taking place today.
2: Yeah, yeah, and even the the fact that in the story, the uh, antagonist friend Arnold Friend, the fact that he is trying to stay up to date on the language and is not mm. quite sure what is accurate, that helps it, you know, helps the story stay relevant and timely.
0: Right. Yeah. That's interesting that he's a little out of step. It It's not, the story's not trying to present him as being, on the cutting edge and being hip and modern, it's it's intentionally telling us, no, no, he's kind of a year behind. He's struggling to keep up. He's got something, he's got a slogan painted on his car that is last year's <laughs> slogan. And, uh, oh, it just, it just drives me crazy to read the story. It feels, it hits so close to home because I remember guys like that where, you know, everyone in high school is so cool and they're so current And they're so up on everything. And then there'd be these older guys who kind of come back and they're hanging around and they're trying so hard. And Arnold Friend, he's got these, his fashion and he's wearing those boots. He's trying to be a little taller than he is. And he's, he's trying to, there's one point where he runs through all those phrases that he says. And they're all, it's like, he's trying to remember which one is, is the one that's, Mm -hmm. that's an in you know which phrase is Mm -hmm. in at at the moment and it's it did really remind me of uh guys that i had seen who were kind of in their 20s uh maybe into their 30s who were kind of trying to be part of the high school world back in high school
2: yes likewise and 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 hopefully you avoided it this but creepy guys trying to date younger women yes
0: Yeah. And there's, it's so, um, there's this sliding scale, I guess. I mean, most states have a Romeo and Juliet kind of law for a a 19-year-old and a 17-year-old or an 18-year-old and a 20-year-old. But then Mm -hmm. when you start to get younger, on the one hand, and you start to get older, I mean, clearly this is out of bounds. uh, But, you know, there is that, There's something kind of seductive about these guys who come to the high school. We can talk about Connie and why she might be particularly vulnerable to this. And we should also say, I guess, that the whole premise of the story is Joyce Carolos was basing it on a a serial killer and uh, was kind of uh, interested that these girls who were drawn to this serial killer had come from you know, good homes, quote, unquote. Uh, and so she was trying to sort of get in the mindset of somebody who would feel that attraction, even if they weren't necessarily someone you might think of as a victim. But, you know, it's just that that feeling for a 15-year-old, a 16-year-old girl. Uh, the, the guy has a job and a car, mm-hmm. and he's kind of this grown-up. But then she's also shocked by their age. There's that... That moment where his friend, Ellie, she sees his mm-hmm. face and she's shocked that he's clearly like 40. She says he looks like a 40 year old baby. And there's this this feeling that she's getting in over her head. But there's something right. about the way that that these guys, you know, the things that they have, but also just the confidence and the way they take charge that is proves to be kind of compelling to her as well.
2: Right. I, I guess in my reading of the story, I agree that initially she was intrigued. Mm-hmm. There's this cool guy wearing, you know, some of the latest fashions, the the clothes that they wear with the um, reflective lenses and he's not sort of polished, maybe as someone her parents would approve of.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, that, that is attractive and compelling. However, I think when she realizes that he is not a teenager or not 20 early 20s i do think that even when friend when it became apparent to her that friend was a little older i think that was a moment where she was no longer interested but maybe felt a little a yeah. little trapped
0: by circumstances the whole part where she's first with the high school guy and And she just sees friend and she kind of can't help herself from turning to take another look back. And it does seem like she's just kind of mildly uh, tempted at that point. But then when he shows up at her house, things get really Uh dark really fast. The first time I read this, I just I remember feeling like I almost couldn't keep reading that it was so disturbing to me. Yeah. I felt like I, did, I do when I read stories about people with gambling addictions or drug addictions or something where they know it's bad for them and they can't stop themselves. I've always had a really hard mm-hmm. time reading stories like that. And this one, I felt like she was being pulled into something and and I saw her almost like a friend I wanted to save. And I remember <laughs> having friends like that and feeling like, don't you see how bad this is for you? And and me just feeling so helpless watching it all happen it kind of took me back to that and and uh, I found it really hard to read the first time was that you as well did you read it almost like a horror story
2: I absolutely read it as a horror story I you know when I when I first started reading it I saw myself as you know Connie I mean I was a teenage girl at one time I had been through puberty and I was you know I had hormones and I just didn't quite, you know, have the maturity to to um, <laughs> to regulate myself when my body can regulate hormones. And yeah. you see yourself, and and maybe you look back and see mistakes you made, and maybe uh, decisions you regret. But then, as you you know, you continue to follow her on her story. You know, I definitely felt <laughs> for her and and wish she would have made a different decision. And I, I even reading it two or three times later. I'm like, why don't you just close and lock the door? Yeah. Um, winning protector. And and honestly, the story never gets stale to me. Like I still, you know, feel anxious as I get toward the end. And even though I know what's gonna happen, I, I still am, you know, entranced by her sad journey.
0: Yeah. I see something different in it every time too. I I do sometimes I I really see it from her point of view as if I'm in her head and sometimes I look at like what society is doing to her and sometimes I look at the way her family role is. So why don't we kind of tick through those and and talk about some of the different aspects her family. Mm-hmm. I mean she's got this big absence in her life, her mother's approval. She's always bickering with her mother although she also kind of thinks that her mother might secretly like her the best more than June. Mm-hmm. There's that weird thing that happens with beautiful people, especially beautiful girls, where mm-hmm. others relate to their beauty and respond to their beauty. And uh, adults are just kind of casual about it, favoring the good looking kids. And then it ends mm-hmm. up being that the the ones who are beautiful, uh, it comes to define them and they start to view the world that way. Like, somebody is beautiful or not beautiful and they're weak because they're not beautiful. And it ends up kind of taking over their personality. It seems like,
2: you know, to your point earlier, when you say uh, reading it at different times, colors, how you view the story, as I was reading it, you know, more recently in preparation for this uh, podcast, I felt animosity on part of the narrator toward Connie. Mm. And, and so maybe it's true the The idea that she is a beautiful girl mm-hmm. and her mom was a beautiful girl at one point too. And, and maybe, you know, yeah. at some point in the story, that's something they can relate to. But I, I felt an animosity from the narrator that perhaps the mom's attitude toward her was due to the fact that she had lost her beauty. So I'm not saying any particular character within the story is a narrator. I think it's obviously... A third-person narrator, but I don't think that it's the story is neutral. toward
0: Connie, mm. kind of like why are you so shallow, Connie?
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I picked up on that too. It seemed like there is this feeling that Connie maybe knows. She thinks she knows more than she does, or she's maybe a little Mm -mm. too cocky or arrogant for her own good. And Mm -hmm. she definitely is too judgmental about others, the people who might be trying to help her by encouraging her to be more like her sister, June. She has no patience for them, no time for them. And I don't know how much that's the narrator or the author judging her and how much it's the narrator or the author just sort of presenting that side of her and saying, this is one of the paths that can lead someone to being in this dilemma with Arnold Friend if they grow up and, and this is how they are viewing the world and taught to view the world.
2: That, that's a fair point. We don't know. But the reason I tend to lean toward the former, at least in this particular reading, is because you don't see the other side of her. Yeah. There is, within the few pages of the story, I think any, aside from her beauty, any sort of redeemable characteristic that you don't necessarily have to read into the story. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I don't want to get ahead of you, but in terms of reading into the story, I think I totally don't buy, you know what? I won't get ahead of you. I will sort of go through things. Yeah,
0: you go through, Jack. Well, what what do we, if we just stick to the first few pages, what do we like about Connie? I almost feel like the only thing I really like about her is that she's young, so I sort of excuse some of this attitude. But it's the side of girls or women, young women, that always used to frustrate mm-hmm. me when I was that age, which was, mm-hmm. why are you doing this, which is obviously self-destructive why are you drawn to this guy why are you Mm -hmm. why is it so important to you to flirt and be recognized and to to it just seemed like all the bad decisions and all the Mm -hmm. bad motives were there and it was just to see it from the outside just felt frustrating
2: right so i i think you just said what i was i was saying earlier like they're the, the narrator the author they don't give us a like a lot to like about her right one thing i think that is in the story but that's not developed or that's not really apparent is that uh, her love of music yes uh, she clearly enjoys music she likes music and so one thing that i would disagree with you about slightly is that it's not the boy or the guys that really is her focus it, mm-hmm. it seems it's the music because when you come up with a couple of boys and even Eddie, who she ends up with in the story, like she he's just one of many and she just still hears music and that's what she recalls. Yeah. I think it's less of, you know, the hormonal passion. But there's something there for her if she were able to mature and Yeah. And, you know, develop into an adult and have fully formed a fully formed character. I think it's, you know, a big part of her would probably do something with music, maybe poetry. I I think that's a part of what drives
0: her. There is, I mean, music comes up so often in this story and it's, you know, it's from 1966. So we're still at that era where music is, is uh, the music of rebellion and the older Mm -hmm. generation is upset at the younger generation and their use of music. And I think Oates was probably on the younger side of that and sort of saying, no, you don't get it. This is, music is expressing something here. It's a soundtrack of rebellion for her. Some people have said that the whole story is a critique of modern youth's obsession with sexual themes in popular mm-hmm. music and that that's kind of what's driven her to this point. But I found it to be more like a reflection of her psychological state. She was kind of a lonely person at bottom, mm-hmm. but she's really excited about that disc jockey that she recognizes him. And then when she goes outside and and Arnold is there with his car And Ellie is listening and she hears that it's the same disc jockey and the music Mm -hmm. inside the house and the music in the car is kind of blending together. And it just seemed like it was more like she was almost defining herself by the music and the community of people who would listen to the same music, that she didn't know where she belonged exactly, but she kind of knew that she felt at home where the music was.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Before we leave the family here, the father. yeah <laughs> what what a non-entity. I really that was one of my favorite things, uh, just from a writer's perspective is the way Joyce Carlos presents the father. It's this great there's a lot about the the sort of battle she's in with her mother. And then the father mm-hmm. is it's like a sentence and a half where it's just their father was away at work most of the time. And when he came home, he wanted supper and he read the newspaper at supper. And after supper, he went to bed and it's just supper, 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 you know, like as if yeah. the only thing that you could really notice about him is that he's around at supper time, and that that's what he wants. And that's all the only time they see him. Then it says he didn't bother talking much to them, but around his bent head. Connie's mother kept picking at her. So it was kind of like like the the father doesn't play any role here in helping to guide Connie through whatever she's going through or helping her to make decisions or even just being a part of any of this. He's he's just right. a, a bald head that's kind of in the way. Mm-hmm. Uh but then mm-hmm. uh it's interesting that Arnold kind of returns to the father and it, it is it is kind of this. I mean, the story's also been criticized as being kind of about the male patriarchy. I don't know, criticized, but right. it's been analyzed as being about the male patriarchy. And you can kind of see that because here's this father who's kind of a, a zero. But uh, on the other hand, it's almost like the father still owns Connie in this kind of throwback way. And Arnold is trying to pry her away from her father. As if the father Mm -hmm. is the the one who's supposed to protect her or the one who's he's he's going to defeat the father. And, you know, it's much less of the psychology of the mother at that point when Arnold gets on the scene.
2: I love like you. I love the fact that the father played such a small role in the story. I thought it was telling, like you learn more about the mother's sister and their conversations back and forth than you do about (laughs) the dad and his personality. You know, as a as a critique to the dad, I think, and and a critique to the mom too, like you have this young girl, 15 years old, staying out 11 o'clock at night, like, and she's attractive. You would think a dad who had any interest in his family would have said something, gave yeah. her some counsel, and if counsel was given, maybe he. would it would have been at least a sentence here. Like my dad said, you know, watch out for those guys. Yeah, But you don't even get that.
0: He's just checked out. And and the mom, there's that great detail where uh, Connie is thinking about her mom. She gets on the phone with one sister and they complain about the third sister. And then she gets on the phone with the third sister and they complain about the second sister. You know, and it's kind of like, Mm -hmm. her mom is not mature either. And Connie sees that. And it's kind of like, Who are you to judge me? Who are you to give me this advice that I should be more like June? You're just as petty and shallow and and gossipy as what you're claiming that you disapprove of. You're actually doing that yourself. And the only difference between me and you is that you've aged out of your beauty.
2: (laughs) Well, Jack, I have to be a contrarian (laughs) here Um, because I like to think of myself as relatively mature. And I do happen to have younger sisters. (laughs) And I have gotten on the phone and complained about my sister. (laughs) So maybe that's just a woman relationship thing.
0: (laughs) Well, I guess you could complain in a mature way.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh, but you would, Um, you know, actually, maybe, yeah, maybe that's not fair. Because I think what happens with sisters is they fall back into their childhood or high school relationships. You know, Mm -hmm. with one another, Mm -hmm. like you're it's that sort of thing where you could be one sister is 74 and the other is 72. But it is still the kid's sister.
2: And you remember that time when your parents favored (laughs)
0: the younger sister
2: or the older sister because she was prettier. It it never goes away.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Never. Uh, But we haven't really talked about sex here. Yet, but yeah. that's the other huge thing in this story. And that's where, I, re- I mean, the music I felt was really tied to society, and I really felt sex was tied to society. And I don't know how much we've changed, but I did think that it was probably everything that I was reading into it was probably even more pronounced in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And Connie just doesn't know what to do. It's out there. I mean, virginity is such a big... Deal. There's such a big threshold, but she really has no tools to know how to cope with this. And there's something about Arnold who's kind of more experienced and, and uses it almost like a weapon against her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. that, that's the other thing that really makes this as disturbing as it is, is, you know, he's using that as well as just violence. But he's he's really using the sort of seduction and, and her inexperience sexually. But her her knowing that she's on the cusp of that, uh, it's such a prominent mm-hmm. part of the story. Um, how did you read that? Did you read it as a as an allegory or as a, a rite of passage or what was your reading of sex in this story?
2: I, in 2020, in 2019, mm-hmm. sex in society is looked at differently than it was in the 60s. But mm-hmm. one thing that's even more prominent today is the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe if I had read it outside of that context, you know, more of an allegory, sort of going back to the, the criticism that focused on patriarchy and, and masculine dominance um, yeah but in the in the lens uh, through the me too movement you know i read it as men older men interested in this young beautiful girl and a young beautiful girl whose home hormones are not <laughs> stable her brain hasn't caught up with them I, I you know i view it as her being vulnerable to that and her and at least arnold friend taking advantage of that so yeah. even even if you not look at friend you look at eddie i think that story doesn't say so but eddie's clearly older than she is i think because there was this other boy that her and her friend sort of brush off because he's in their high school and same grade and so the uh, the guy at the friendly's restaurant i'm imagining is older Mm -hmm. so from that perspective also from the perspective of someone who is and i think maybe the author oats intended and if, even if she didn't i think readers look at it like this is connie's fault mm-hmm. like she should know better she shouldn't put her and if this happens to her it's because she you know slut shaming those yeah. are words that are used to refer to young women who are exploring themselves in their bodies uh even with uh, her friend the mom brings it up earlier and her um the Pettinger, the yep. Pettinger girl. Yep. She What's calls the her deal a with the
0: Pettinger girl? Yep. And Connie yeah. just, he, she kind of diverts her mom's attention. Oh, that's, yeah. like she knows yeah. how to say the right thing to get her mom to back off. But yeah, her mom is yeah. kind of, uh, that's clearly what she's implying, I think. It has been, the story has been criticized as being anti-feminist in the sense of Connie being punished for her sexual feelings. I guess I see elements of that. I don't know if that, tells the whole story. I don't read the whole story that way.
2: So you're right. It's not the whole story. And I don't even know that that's the intent of the author. But, and I, I actually, I don't read it that way. I think at least now, I read it more in the lines of, she should be protected. She's a young woman, a young girl on the cusp of womanhood. And her dad should have been a bigger presence in her life. Her mom should have been a bigger presence in her life because she's not making good decisions, clearly. Mm -hmm. But, she's vulnerable. So I don't necessarily see her as someone who, you know, such suffer these consequences because maybe she changes the way she wears her clothes or she walks differently when she's out of the house. She's learning herself and learning how to be a sexual being. Yeah. And we all have to do that at some point. And so I agree with you with your last statement that yeah. it's not the whole story.
0: That's the thing. I mean, there's this sort of tension with people this age where feels like they're growing up too fast but you know that it's inevitable that they have to grow up so you know they may be a year ahead of where they should be or two years ahead of where they should be but you know it's not it's not like they're never going to grow up it's going to happen and they know it's going to happen and and so you know getting that right it's kind of a failure of just the system at large that it doesn't help prepare her for as confused as she is about what sex is going to mean for her. Mm-hmm. So this is a question, it's going to sound like it's a, a totally separate question, but I'm actually, I see these two things as linked. Another reading of the story that's common is that Arnold Friend is the devil. There's that that point where he says, you know who I am. Do mm-hmm. you read him as the devil?
2: I do not. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've seen that criticism and I <laughs> don't get it. <laughs>
0: um,
2: I think he's a very bad guy. I... I looked, you know, when I first read the story, it reminded me of Hill House, like this horror story. Mm. So I could see supernatural specter, yeah. but not the devil per se. Um, <laughs> and maybe if I if I was more into religion, I could see that. But 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 what about you? What What, uh, what are your thoughts on well, that? Well,
0: here's here's where I think the parallel or the comparison with Devils interesting. He's not a serial killer. And the, Ellie is more what I imagine a serial killer to be like, where, you mm-hmm. know, Ellie is always just like, you want me to pull out the phone? And he's, he's there for the murder. You know, he's totally creepy, mm-hmm. but he's, he's just a, seems like just a psychopath. But mm-hmm. Arnold is more of the kind of narcissistic, charismatic figure. But what's interesting is he wants Ellie to choose. Uh, I'm sorry. He wants Connie to choose him. He mm-hmm. wants it to be the battle is over her free will. And that's kind mm-hmm. of one of the things I associate with the devil. You know, the devil could come and just steal you. But instead, the devil wants you to join him, wants you to decide to join him. And and there's a right. lot of that in this encounter where he says, you know, mm-hmm. I could just I could just go right through the screen door. It's nothing. And sometimes he uses threats of violence. And sometimes he uses, mm-hmm. he tries sort of every trick in the book in a really short mm-hmm. span of this dialogue. Sometimes it's acting like he knows her better than she knows herself. And he knows mm-hmm. uh, where her family is, as if he's kind of done all this reconnaissance, but also just that he understands her. And mm-hmm. sometimes he tries to tempt her with this, almost like forbidden fruit, you know, like, you know, you're going to want to know this, you're going to want to travel to this land with me and I can show Mm -hmm. you. And it's incredibly creepy, but it does have this Mm -hmm. feeling where he's kind of holding back. Like he's almost saying to Ellie, yeah, of course we could just, Mm -hmm. we could just break down the door and pull out the phone and grab her and throw her in the car and, and take her off to wherever we're going to do what we're going to do. But instead it's like, he wants her to, decide that she wants to be with him, which is incredibly creepy.
2: That is a good point. He, he, ne- and he never does. He never goes in after her. She walks out the door to him. Yeah. That's a fair point. I, you know, I have not been personally tempted by the devil. <laughs> um, and of course, maybe I have, and maybe I fell for it and just don't know it. But <laughs> Or maybe you
0: resisted and the devil gave up.
2: Possible. Oh, I like that one. That's, that's the one I vote for. That um, You're right. I, I wonder, though, if with the devil, is it successful from, you know, if you look at it from that perspective, for her to come out with the intention of protecting her family? Is that, a, is that still a win for the devil? Yeah. Or does it have to be, I want to reach for that apple because it looks
0: delicious? Well, let's talk about the ending, because Joyce Carol Oates has said that the ending is a gesture of unexpected heroism. Or mm-hmm. an unexpected gesture of heroism. Is that how mm-hmm. you read this? I mean, she must Absolutely be... Absolutely not. Just, yeah, she must mean that Connie decides she's going to sacrifice herself to save her family. But No, is, I don't think so. Do you think that... It, it just doesn't ring true to me at all. No. I'm surprised that Joyce Carol ever said that because it yeah. just seems like... I don't see it that way at all. I I think it's maybe something that he that's one of the tricks in his in his, uh, you know, that's one of the tools in his toolbox Mm -hmm. he he wants her to think that he wants her Mm -hmm. to he lets her think that, oh, you'll be saving your family if you do this. So Mm -hmm. you'll be, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a noble thing. It's a you'll be a martyr. But I view that as more her being manipulated into thinking that rather than she's actually being heroic
2: right so so two things one i think i agree with you the way the story is written it doesn't lend itself to that type of self-reflection by connie in that moment because immediately before she walks out of the door she's screaming hysterically screaming to the point where she can't even push the buttons on the telephone um also, for it to work, it, it, would, it wouldn't it be altruistic. I think for it to work, it would have to be Connie looking in the mirror and thinking, oh, I'm such a great person. Look at me making this sacrifice for my mm. family. Yeah. But that doesn't work either, the way the, the story is built up to the end. So I think right. Joyce Carol Oates wrote the story, but I don't personally agree with this being a decision that Connie makes to go out of the house in order to protect her family from this devil or Arnold friend.
0: Yeah. And yeah. in fairness, I haven't read the whole quote. Maybe that's just taken out of context. And maybe what Joyce Carolos was talking about was how there are so many different things going on in this moment. The, mm-hmm. the psychological chess game that's going on between the two of them has got so many different aspects it takes so many quick turns that maybe she was saying maybe she was just wanted people to notice that one of the things here is that you could uh connie Mm -hmm. could be viewing it as heroic or or that arnold has used that has thrown that out there to try to give connie yet another reason why to walk out that door
2: right and one of the many arrows he was throwing at her to make her, to help her make the decision.
0: Yeah. Did you feel like uh, this was particularly rooted in place? It takes place in Tucson, which is Arizona, I guess, is where the serial killer was that Joyce Carolos was reading about. Did you feel like this could happen anywhere in America, or did you feel like it was a real product of the region where it took place?
2: I think in... Suburban America, where you have strip malls, and used yeah. to have the large malls. I, I think it could happen anywhere, where you have, you know, cool kids, cool people, people who want to be cool, people who pa- who are past their prime and are yeah. reminiscing on what it was like when they were in high school. I think it could could happen anywhere in any small town. Maybe not in Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> or downtown Washington, D.C., but in the suburbs of northern Virginia to Wisconsin to Indiana.
0: Yep. Oh, yeah. It definitely could have happened in Wisconsin. I mean, I read the story. <laughs> I I picture. I don't picture it in Arizona at all. I picture it as being in Wisconsin uh, mm-hmm. with all of the places where I grew up being part of the, the landscape. And, you know, that is something that we're getting away from a little bit, I think, is the car Mm-hmm. You know, the car being such a, a central part of teenagers' lives and being such a, a symbol of freedom and, and such a vehicle for uh escape and and uh rebellion and, and growing up and all of that. It I don't know if uh my kids, for example, feel the same way about cars as it felt to me in the seventies and eighties and nineties where guys were fixing cars more and Mm -hmm. they were more proud of their car. And it was sort of, it was a real part of masculinity and, and just youth was these, uh, these jalopies that he has painted gold with, with slogans on it. (laughs) Right.
2: Arthur, I mean, uh, Arnold is not subtle at all. He he wants to be caught. Yeah. Yeah. shiny jalopy so the other thing that at least 10 20 years ago 50 years ago the was ubiquitous was the friendly restaurant yeah <laughs> i don't i don't know that there are too many of those around anymore yeah. um
0: right yeah uh it's
2: I, I don't know that they were ever cool <laughs> The yeah. a, a story it makes them appear uh with, infested with flies and all that but
0: well it, I don't know because they were probably cool to those people. I mean, that's that's the thing. It I didn't realize that people would turn their nose down at Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. I mean, when I was a high schooler, those felt like Pizza Hut felt like a fancy restaurant. <laughs> I mean, that <laughs> was like you actually had a a waiter or a waitress would come around and you you sat at tables yeah. and and ordered off a menu and all of that. That seemed like. Uh, that seemed pretty fancy to me. And then I, I learned later Fair people point. thought, you know, oh, this isn't this isn't good pizza or whatever. So maybe the friendlies seemed like a cool hangout at the time.
2: To point. That is that is true. I think in the eyes <laughs> of younger me, the it was, you know, exciting to go get your burger and shake.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. We haven't talked about the numbers. There's a the part uh-huh. where Arnold points at the numbers and calls it a code. 33, mm-hmm. 19, 17. Do, mm-hmm. do you have any thoughts on that? I, I can, I can throw out what people have speculated that refers to.
2: So I do know that there's a lot of speculation on the record about them. Yeah. But in, in reading the story for me, Oates never sort of delved behind where, or, you know, told us what was behind the numbers. Mm-hmm. And so personally, I never sort of put a lot of significance in it. I did hear the one about looking at the Bible from, you know, going backwards to it, right. and it landed on a particular passage that seemed to be on point. Uh, I don't know if that's what you're going to talk about, but yeah. But other than that, I just haven't focused on
0: them. So that that's one where I wouldn't. I don't really like that reading of it because that feels a little <laughs> bit like a game to me, where. The characters, I mean, maybe, maybe he had done that and he knew that code, but it wouldn't be something Mm -hmm. she would be expected to find any meaning in on the fly. Right. You know, then it feels like the readers are playing this game with the author of, oh, we've, we've deciphered the secret code or something. That's not as interesting to me. There's one a little more interesting, which is Mm -hmm. that he's referring to his own age and the age of the people he's killed. That he's he's 33, then he killed a 19 year old, he killed a 17 year old. And we know in the Life magazine article that the killer had killed three people. So this would, Connie would be the third, but it's that's kind of interesting Mm -hmm. to me because there is something about those numbers 33, 19, 17. Age Mm -hmm. is so important in the story and the idea that the numbers are going down into the teens and Mm -hmm. kind of reaching down toward Connie. Yeah, 15. Yeah, that to me seemed like something she might intuit, even just Mm -hmm. not knowing anything about the numbers, but thinking 1917 and then thinking of herself and her own age. People, kids especially, are so conscious of their age. So that was interesting. Mm -hmm. But then ultimately, I just thought it was interesting enough as a... Uh, an example of him kind of having this secret knowledge or seeming to know things that that she could learn from him or, you know, it was a way he exerted power over her was to act as if uh, his age and maturity kind of gave him a, that he, he knew things she didn't know and that he could teach her.
2: Right. I I actually like your reading of it because it just makes it even more creepy.
0: Yeah. Right. It is. And I I think that's the thing that really got to Joyce Carol Oates was, you know, what is it about these guys? You know, it's one thing if they're just complete animals and they just walk Mm -hmm. around, you know, with a big knife or a gun and they're just hacking people. But it's another thing when they're getting inside people's heads somehow and they Mm -hmm. know what buttons to push and they are playing this psychological game with people. Mm It's incredibly creepy. It's, a, it's such a powerful story. And yet it doesn't feel to me anyway, like it's trying too hard. It's very readable. It's very easy to read and follow. And it mm-hmm. kind of sneaks up on you that you're reading about mm-hmm. just this, this normal family or this average person. And then all of mm-hmm. a sudden, it feels like you're in this fight for your life.
2: Right, this alternate universe. Earlier, I, I told you that when I first read it, it made me think of just this horror story, Hill House. But mm. upon reading it more recently, it made me think of Cold Blood. Mm. Uh, just yeah. you, the, the killer, like you said, he's not, he's not some knife-wielding psycho. He, it, you know, it's the devil is just this charismatic mm-hmm. charmer who... Is on the one hand acting like a human being and and trying to seduce you, and and that is what makes it more creepy. And and the idea that this you know woman, like you said, she she doesn't work too hard. It's not an overworked story. You you fall into it, and yeah. it, and and she did it beautifully. Mm. If you can call creepiness beautiful,
0: it's kind of a Hannibal Lecter story too, mm-hmm. isn't it? Where it's like the it's just the two of them, and they're just in this this battle, this mental struggle, mm-hmm. psychological struggle. So last question, what do you think happens after the story ends? Where does all this wind up?
2: It's all over now, <laughs>
0: <laughs> which is to bring it full circle, that's the uh, the song that it was based on, right? That's yes, the, uh, yeah. for Bob Dylan, it's all over now, Baby Blue, which Joyce Carol Oates said inspired her and was one of the reasons why she dedicated this the story to Bob Dylan.
3: Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. I agree. It's sad to say, <laughs> but I, I, I'm glad she cut off the story where she did. I think it's very haunting. And the description of, you know, the place that she's going is is very well done. But I agree with you. It's mm-hmm. all over Baby Blue. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. <Connie>. Yes. <laughs>
2: For Connie. Oh gosh. And even though, you know, she doesn't take us there. I, I agree. I, I like the way, you know, it's, it's just beautiful scenic yeah. uh, landscape that she goes off into. She definitely alluded to it a little bit earlier yeah. and it's, it's not anything we want anyone to
0: experience. If there's a happy ending to the story, maybe it's that stories like this and just a general awareness have made uh, parents better able to equip their children and guide them through this really tumultuous <laughs> period. I, I don't, I, I, wouldn't claim that that happens in one hundred percent of the cases, but hopefully, it happens a lot more than it did in nineteen sixty six.
2: Well, <laughs> Jack, you know one of the things I love about you, you are a glass half full <laughs> kind of guy. Just think if 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 Connie's mom had spoken to her. And gave her yeah. sort of the the um, what is it the you know, this happened to X, Y, and Z person, which is gonna happen yeah. to Connie. Connie would have rolled her eyes and it's like, Mom, don't be a dope.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: That's what I suspect at least. Um, yeah.
0: But yeah, the there's,
2: strength eternal.
0: <laughs> and and maybe that's um, maybe that's the lesson too is is not just that society or or that grownups need to do a better job, but that there's a part to play here by the adolescents who have to kind mm-hmm. of step up and say, I can't just think I know everything and ignore all of the advice of the people around me and think I'm, I'm ready to do this on my own. I guess the problem is most people probably don't read this until they're uh, in college right. or after they're already a little bit uh, equipped to deal with it. I don't think many 15-year-olds are reading this.
2: Right. No. But, you know, to to your point, kids today are a lot more mature than mm. they were in the 60s That's true. and then in the 90s even. So maybe they're not reading this, but with Twitter and yeah. TikTok, which I don't know anything about, like they <laughs> they probably they probably are more sophisticated than than we were.
0: Yeah. Or like there's a lot of shows I think that would would have scenes like this or come close to it on things like Netflix and, you know, they run all of these smarter teen dramas and, and romantic mm-hmm. comedies that uh, teenagers watch. Mm-hmm. This is that's probably not a lot of pop culture stuff that dealt with this for someone mm-hmm. in Connie's position back in 1966.
2: Yeah. And they're a lot more gritty now. They're yeah. so gritty now. They're what's, sometimes maybe even shocking to to me that they're talking about on a netflix like riverdale Mm -hmm. Uh, i don't know if you've gotten into that quite yet but this is something that would be seen on that show and it's probably rated tv 14 you know Mm
0: so it's yeah yeah Mm -hmm. okay well let's leave things there evie lee it has been a pleasure thank you so much for joining me again on the history of literature Thank you, Jack. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to all my friends, Bob and Joyce Carroll, and of course, Evie, for joining me today. And to all my listeners, their friends too, Anga and Daniel and Jane, maybe especially Jane. I hope she's found what she's looking for and I'm sorry it wasn't here at the History of Literature podcast. I hope you find what you're looking for, dear listeners, in podcasting, in podcast listening, and in life, or at least I hope that you're enjoying the search. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.